Your Most Avid Reader by Bibi Berkey. You've been silent for three days now. Are you really planning to leave it at that? You can if you like. I don't mind. I just want to chuck the last chapter of the Hesiod story at you and be done with it. Might as well finish things neatly, close that particular door. Is there any point? Is any of it true? Not a dicky bird. No such thing as the Hesiods or the Radiant Wanderers. Made all of it up. Never been to Lincolnshire, so no idea what it actually looks like. Though British countryside is much of a muchness for this purpose. Oh, and despite my distant background as a history researcher, I have next to no knowledge of the agricultural revolution other than what I did at school. Was there especially much rural poverty and unrest? For the life of me, I can't remember. But I was determined to do absolutely everything from my head without ever having recourse to Wikipedia. Pretty good going, really. I was quite impressed by myself. But it's all to do with momentum, isn't it? Once the ball is rolling, your mind just keeps on inventing. This may come as a surprise, but I never meant to write as much as I did. I just sat down and it all tripped out rather too easily. Actually, of course, there is one bit of historical veracity, one utterly accurate and true representation of the past. I dare say you can guess it. No? Nothing? Gone quiet again. Strange, you couldn't get enough of me earlier. Anyway, you don't need any prompting. You know the bit I mean. The bit where two young women, two close and loyal friends, talk excitedly of the future. And one of them spills the beans about her original idea for a series of books. For historically accurate, though obscure, settings to a never-ending love story. She's so excited. She's planned it all. All she ever wanted was to be a writer. But I'm not the writer. You are. Still nothing? Is that it, then? I don't really want it to end like this. By that, I mean I haven't finished saying everything I need to say. I want to put you straight on one thing from the start. If you think this is some pre-meditated act of revenge, then you're wrong. I never planned this book. It just happened. I never meant you to send it off to your agent. That was all you're doing. I just woke up one morning and in a rare moment of silence in my household, my mind wandered back 20-odd years to when you and I were friends. I speculated over whether you ever thought of me. If so, how you thought of me. Did you still despise me? Could you even remember why? I had an urge there and then to get in touch with you. But not as me as someone else, so that maybe I could find out whether you felt any remorse. The notion of having a plot idea just came out of the blue as I started typing. Then it evolved as I wrote. I didn't expect anything back. I did exactly as I've done for the past 20 years, chided myself at even thinking about you. For so long I'd pushed you into the dormant part of my brain. I never thought you'd take a bite. I never thought of it as bait. I was just scratching a persistent itch. The mother of all itches. I'm this close to calling my lawyer. Maybe even the police. You're deranged. I'm not, actually. 
I'm perfectly normal and leading a normal life. I'm probably far more normal than you are. But even normal people can ask awkward questions, can't they? Like I've just said, I haven't been struggling with bitterness for years. I merely woke one morning, unburdened by the normal concerns of my children, and wondered about you. I must have wondered for only five minutes before I thought, damn it, I'm going to write to her and ask her why. Why she did it. But I want to know what she's like now. She changed so much even when I knew her. Is she like the first moniker I knew, or the one she became? Was her original state a, a fabrication in any case? So, the only abnormal thing in all this, apart from your behaviour, was my invention of another identity as a means of reaching you. It was never intended to last long, and I certainly had no plans for her to go into partnership with you. But then, if you read back through our correspondence, you'll find that every time I try to extricate myself from this relationship, you weren't having it. You were the one who sent someone else's work to your agent claiming it was your own. Call the police, by all means. But how will you explain that act of deceit? Anyway, you don't seriously think the police would give a fuck about a dull, make-believe correspondence between two middle-aged women. Then it was your intention merely to ruin me. Congratulations. I haven't ruined you. Stop the melodrama. It won't wash. You walked into this and made all your own decisions. You deceived me into revealing confidences. I told you everything. You deceived me when I told you mine. Or have you forgotten? Shall I remind you? Maybe I've got the facts wrong. Maybe I dreamt it all. Maybe you're right. I am deranged. Let me recount to you how I remember it and tell me if I'm wrong. I won't read it. I think you probably will. It was just golden, that period of my life. Don't get me wrong, it's beautiful now too. More beautiful. I dearly love my husband and children and have a fabulous home and garden. Live in a lovely place with just the most perfect friends. But then, when I was 22 and it was all ahead of me, I was fired by hope and ambition. And I was all right looking. I know I was. One can be objective, it seems to me, about oneself 20 years ago. I can think of myself as her, not as me. I was finishing my MA. I was in London. I was among dear friends, and somehow I had it sussed. I knew that things could go so wrong at any stage in a person's life, and I was grateful that they were so right. The plan was to finish the MA, go travelling, and come back and do what I always planned to do, start my fiction writing career. It wasn't as vague as that, of course. I'd already mapped out the stories, the whole series, and I had a cockiness about me that entertained not the slightest sort of failure. I was already a pretty good writer. I'd spent my teens producing ream after ream of abysmal juvenilia. I'd already produced about six good short stories, two of them published in literary journals. It was a way of life already. Dougie Milton was a brilliant scholar. My friends and I usually hooked up with him during our free time because he was there and was very entertaining but mainly because I thought his wife was the business. Clever, lively, hilarious, exactly the person for me. We were made for each other. And she looked so striking too, tall with such unusual hair, thick and black and curly. She dressed so well and was well-read and going places. She had a proper job, a career in progress. I thrilled at her company. I'll never forget the day I met her. 
Dougie introduced her as my one true love. And though it was a rather sick-making expression, we let him off, because that kind of love was the holy grail, wasn't it? You were lucky to get it, and we held it in high esteem and respect. It was like a religion that you daren't mock, in case of divine repercussions. But here's the bit you ought to know. Here are two facts on which I should put you straight at once, because you seem to have been labouring under such massive misapprehensions for so long. A. All the girls that were his colleagues, me included, thought he was a bit of a twat and had no sexual interest in him. And B. He was deeply in love with his wife and had no sexual interest in us. The fact that he loved her so much was his saving grace. He was very amusing and loved our company, but to my memory... He never so much as hinted at any feelings of desire towards anyone other than his wife. So, we've got that out of the way. No one giggled or simpered around him. We were young but serious people, all of us rather bookish and restrained. We weren't the type to mess about with a married man. We certainly had no idea that his one true love was harbouring such resentment towards us. The idea was preposterous. When Dougie first invited me to dinner at his home, I was very excited. You were my favourite person. To me, you were a magical presence. It wasn't a schoolgirl crush or anything like that. It was just a recognition of our glorious compatibility. I was certain you felt the same way. In fact, at that first dinner in your very grown-up flat with the genuine artworks, my God, the only pictures I had on my walls were museum posters. I sensed in you a similar drive and energy... Do you remember? We played the piano together. You dug out some duet books and we stumbled through a couple of pieces. You were the only person I'd ever played duets with other than my sister. It was like coming home, knowing you. That evening after dinner, as Dougie cleared things away and pottered around the flat, I told you everything about my plans. I explained how I'd stumbled across a document in the V&A about how a party of Chinese ceramicists had been brought over to England at the start of the 1800s. They were put to work in the Staffordshire pottery as advisers and teachers. I told you how I was fascinated about the relationships between these craftsmen and the West Midlands potters. I thought it would make a great setting for the first of my stories. In this version, the girl would be Chinese and her love interest, a young Staffordshire man. When she went home, she would leave behind her a little box of gods... Do you remember that? A little box of Chinese gods. I don't think I could have gone into more detail if I tried. I even told you where the information was. I already had the story mapped out. All the stories come to that. I told you absolutely everything. Even the name of the street where the two lovers would always somehow find sanctuary. Clement Street. An important recurring theme. I revealed it with the same thrilled reverence that I've since learned women use to announce their first pregnancy. You assume the exhilaration is infectious. You assume everyone is wildly happy for you. You assume a lot of things. The only thing I didn't assume was plagiarism. Now, there's a word to get any writer's heart racing. Is yours. Do you know, I was so carried away with the telling of my dream that I didn't really take on board your response. To this day, while I can remember pretty much everything else that went on between us, that horrendous picnic, for example, I can't quite recall your reaction. I've come to think that maybe you didn't give much of one, other than how very Virginia Woolf. What a stupid girl. 
How naive, how unformed I was. One thing I do remember saying makes me shudder with embarrassment now. All I want is to be able to have the word writer in my passport. Huh. I couldn't even hold on to that idea, could I? Anyway, there are several possible scenarios for what happened next. Scenario one. You barely noted what I said and promptly forgot it all, only to retrieve it years later when you decided to write books of your own. By then you'd forgotten where you'd heard the idea, and as you could find no published stories on that subject, you decided it was safe to go ahead and use it. Scenario two. You took on board every word that you heard, and as soon as you got the chance, you produced a book of your own. First come, first served. You assumed that by then I'd probably relinquish the idea anyhow. Scenario three. You never had any intention of writing books, but you were so racked with hatred for me that you took this opportunity for revenge, beat me to my own idea. How perfect. It was a fuck you and I was meant to feel it. It was the most intense bit of vandalism of the human heart one person could wreak on another, other than an affair. You and I both know it was the last of these. The only thing I don't know is why. Why did you hate me so much? What did I do to you? I just can't grasp how I gave offence. What could I possibly have done to deserve your hatred? A little box of gods came out just as I returned from Australia. That was about 15 years ago. I read a review of it in The Guardian. I didn't understand what was happening at first. My heart started aching when I read the title. By the time I'd finished the review, I was drenched in tears. I remember feeling weak and nauseous. At the end of the review, the author said something along the lines of, We won't be kept waiting for too long. The next instalment of Malone's romping historical adventure is due out this autumn. And that was that. For the first time in my easy, contented life, I learnt the meaning of real, crushing pain. Am I exaggerating? Perhaps. Suddenly the future was empty. My brain was empty. I had no other inspiration. My stories had gone, taken from me. I'd never felt lower. What was the point of going on? The world was a vicious place and I'd fallen foul of it. Only one life plan and now it was snuffed out. I'm tired, but I want to finish this for myself. You don't care. Probably haven't read this far anyway. I told you that I didn't want to go on, but slowly I did. You see, it occurred to me that this was exactly what you wanted, for me to feel desolate. You would have calculated exactly how I'd respond. For a while, that was my obsession, that you were bathing in victory. And over time I worked out that that victory would be erased if only I could build a successful life for myself despite it. It had to be sincerely successful. I had to remove you from my everyday thinking and put aside my earlier dreams. It took something superhuman in me. And guess what? Realising that you have the wherewithal to do this, to put your life back onto a happy footing, gives you an extraordinary sense of achievement. You become so proud of yourself, merely for having survived. I became the bigger person because I worked it all out, and I got my reward. I was about to apply for a teaching post at Edinburgh University when I met James. He was a trainee barrister who, like me, was volunteering for a local environmental campaign. I felt so awkward around him that I could barely speak. 
Women love funny men, don't they? I don't know why. Men know this, and so many of them try to be humorous and only make things worse for themselves. Jamie was a genuine article. Very funny, very clever, very beautiful. I was 26 when I married him. He was a year older. I love him still and sometimes wonder how this can be, given all that life has thrown at us. I love him also because he loves me and I'm conscious of how delicate a thread that is. We had our first child a year after we married and discovered after the usual early months of torment and confusion that actually children were rather wonderful and that we'd like to have another one. We had three more, in fact, and it's been my life's work so far to look after them, feed them, dress them, educate and amuse them. I didn't know that there could be such an edifying calling as rearing a family. You see, that's what helped me get over the loss of my ambition. I realised how important this was for me, the love, the home life. The old plans, however grand they were, were just fiddling around the edges. It's controversial to say it, I know, but once you've removed the biological imperative, the rest of life sags away like a boneless body. We have a large house in Blackheath and a dumpy little cottage in Dorset. I spend my days walking dogs, gardening, shopping, reading, cleaning, playing, laughing and loving. I take nothing for granted. I'm lucky. I have landed on my feet. There is nothing better than this. And yet I have to admit that a small fire still burns in my heart. I rarely feel the flame, just now and again, when something reminds me. When I see some fatuous, half-baked interview with you to publicise your latest book. I have to force myself to read these bits of garbage, just in case I come across that old chestnut. Where did you get your idea for the Clement Street series? I haven't yet read any reference to its true origins. I do, of course, remain your most avid reader but not in the way you may have supposed. Do you ever think of me? Do you feel any shame? Have you erased the guilt from your heart? Was there any there in the first place? You think I'm a fool for even asking. I've been a fool so long about you that I had to end it one way or another. If you want to stay silent, then so be it. Part of me dreads what you might have to say. Is it over? Will you let it be over? No, I didn't think so. Hillary was played by Rebecca Charles. Monica by Georgina Sutton. Your Most Avid Reader was written by Bibi Berkey, with sound editing by Mark Lingwood. It was made by Tempest Productions and brought to you with the kind support of Rattlesnake Books, an established seller of books, maps, ephemera, art and curiosities. Rattlesnake Books can be found on Instagram, Etsy, Abe Books and Biblio.